Oh, this yeah. episode brought to you by, by the design principles. There's eight <laughs> to make your group work great. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the Finding Sustainability podcast, and I'm excited to talk to JT Urbaugh today. JT is actually a colleague of mine at Dartmouth College. He is a postdoc in the EEES PhD program, which stands for Ecology, Evolution, Ecosystems, and Society. It takes me a little bit of time to actually get that out. And just to introduce you, JT, before we kind of get going... You know, you were most recently at the University of Michigan in the School of Environment and Sustainability, where you got a PhD in natural resource policy and behavior. Before that, you were at Oxford University, where you studied geography and environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And then before that, you were at uh, Miami University, where you studied environment and philosophy. Yeah. So those are um, three rather different institutions. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Michigan, when I think about the School of Environment and Sustainability, it had gone by a different name before that, right? I mean, that was what, like three or four years ago? Yeah, my um, my diploma actually is still School of Natural Resources and Environment. So that transition okay. happened while I was there. Okay. And so when I think about that school, it, it reminds me of, right, the Nicholas School at Duke. There's a couple mm-hmm. other of these kind of large sustainability, environmentally focused I, I kind of want to say professionally oriented Definitely. environmental schools. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you about like the comparison maybe that you see between those. Hmm. Um, but then you also were at these other two rather different institutions, different from Michigan. So let's start with your, your time before you went to, to get your PhD, actually. Mm-hmm. So when you were studying in Miami or when you're studying in Oxford, what about being there? What about your life kind of made you think, well, the next step is maybe... Michigan, or maybe it's a PhD, it's a PhD here. How did that process work out for you? Yeah, sure. So um, at Miami of Ohio, I studied philosophy and effectively environmental studies. I think it was called environmental principles and practices um, at the time. And that was that, like the name of the major? Yeah, exactly. And it was only available as a co-major. So you had to have another major to pair along with it. And I knew I was a philosophy major and was you know, fiddling around with like zoology or ecology and eventually decided on environmental principles and practices because I like the coursework the most and it was effectively environmental social science. Okay. With more of a policy or like a law and policy focus. Uh, so graduated and then did Teach for America on the Navajo Reservation and taught science for two years in a town called Navajo, New Mexico. And, and it, was that part of a governmental program? It was with Teach for America. Teach for America. Okay. Yeah. And I was in a town that was an ex-logging town. So the Navajo forest products industry uh, was formerly located in uh, Navajo, New Mexico. And it had closed about 10 years prior to my arriving. And the entire town was basically built around this huge sawmill that closed and put hundreds of people out of business on the reservation. Okay. Um, and I think that really drove home, not at the time, I wasn't like very cognizant of it, but it was kind of like this relationship between people and forestry was fascinating and interesting. And the town was beautiful and it was an incredible two years that um, was really, really formative. I think probably some of the most formative years uh, that, that I had. Kind of opened your eyes to looking at the relationship between people and their local place, or yeah, and what happens when um, when there is a basically a resource regime in place that's really hard to move. So back in the 1950s, um, there were two foresters who came out from Berkeley to cruise. I think is the the term that was used. This is most of this information is coming from a dissertation at Northern Arizona. Okay. Um, by this guy named Patrick Pines, who looked into the Navajo forest products industry and kind of the history there. And so uh, these two foresters actually um, calculated the amount of standing stock in the pinyon pine um, and, and general pine ecosystem there. And they miscalculated how much the tribe could take um, year on year. 
and that actually stayed in place, this kind of miscalculation. So they were over harvesting um, for about 30 years. Um, and it was, you know, it was one of these cases where the capital requirements for the mill kept getting greater and greater. And so you'd bring in like these huge trees, but after a while there weren't enough really large ponderosa and pinon pine to harvest. Um, Cause they had adapted to having so many trees available. And then once there were fewer, it was hard to kind of scale back. Yeah. And it's this fascinating story. So eventually it came um, to a head when the Navajo forest products industry, which was a tribal enterprise started to, look into harvesting in sacred groves around the, the reservation and people oh, wow. um, started to protest. And that's when um, also there were some spotted owls found in different sectors of uh, the Navajo forest products industry land that they were going to, they were going to harvest. And so the mill ended up closing down, which was a huge loss of income and resource um, to the people, especially in Navajo, New Mexico. Um, but it was completely avoidable which is this kind of sad part of the story, had that kind of original um, resource plan. And then the 10-year plans after that kind of faced the fact that, you know, there were, there were going to have to be cutbacks along the way in terms of um, the sustainability of the yield that was being that was being created. So anyways, I looked into that history while I was there. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, I just, I wanted to keep teaching. So I taught English in Indonesia and what landed in another forest proximate and forest um, dependent community in northern central Java, but there was more agroforestry. And so I would take walks with other teachers and uh, with students around properties that had like lots of fruit trees or like, you know, small plots for timber. Um, and then it was that year that I was like, you know, I think I'd like to study this a little bit more. So I bet there's at least a few listeners who are thinking, okay, what exactly does agroforestry look like? Mm. What is the prefix due to the term? Yeah. So... Basically, the way that um, it looked in northern central Java, where I was, is you would have several plots of, let's say, chilies or cassava, um, and surrounding that, you would have different timber species, um, or you'd have different fruit tree species. Okay. Um, and so it's just an intercropping of field crops with tree crops at, at its most basic. Okay. Is that what some people refer to as like a multi-use landscape? Yep. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I think it takes a different a different form in different places, but that's what I was most familiar with. Okay. Yeah, and so that's what led me to go to um, to Oxford, and I studied with a guy named Paul Jepson, who had spent about 10 years in Indonesia, because I decided that I'd like to come back and do some research in the community where I was teaching on agroforestry, and specifically looking at uh, smallholder timber production. Okay. And so after that, I was kind of hooked. And just kept going back mostly to Indonesia, um, but just to study these relationships between people and forests. So you went back to Indonesia as a part of your graduate degree at Oxford? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was there for about four months um, doing survey work with farmers in Japara and Pati, which are two districts in northern central Java. Okay. And you said you were hooked? Yeah, I was hooked. I love it. What does it mean? I mean, I, I yeah. have had that same feeling. I remember when I first went to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And started talking to some of the farmers there. You know, I remember the longest interview I did was like eight hours long in some guy's <laughs> house. And I remember feeling this change in myself. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in how you would unpack what you mean by hooked. I mean, what, how did that feel to you? What? I mean, I think people know what you mean, but yeah. surely there's more there. Yeah, sure. So during that field work, I was working with two enumerators um, and working with two Indonesian academics, one at C4, one at the CGIAR Center uh, mm -hmm. for Forestry. Um, That's based out there, right? It is. It's yeah. in Bogor, which okay. is uh, West Java. And I was also working with an Indonesian academic uh, at the Agricultural University of Bogor. And it was just, I was learning so much every day. It was just, I felt like there wasn't a limit to the amount that I could take in in a day. And I was just so fascinated and excited by everything I was learning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's interesting when you go into an interview and the interviews would be a little bit in Indonesian, a little bit in Javanese often. And I could understand the Indonesian, but I couldn't understand the Javanese. And so okay. I'd be sitting there with enumerators who had um, who who were from the area. And I'd always be asking them to like slow down, to stop, to ask questions about something that I didn't understand. And I would be both talking to the enumerator I was working with as well as with um, 
the uh, the farmer who we were interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember m- multiple times where the farmers would just laugh because I they were like, "Why, why is this guy so interested in my trees? Like, I don't, sure, yeah. I don't understand." And at the time, Indonesia was beginning to implement their timber legality assessment system. Um, okay, and that meant that a lot of these smallholder timber producers were kind of, you know, within the next year or two going to be required to prove that their timber was certified legal. And that has kind of been an ongoing struggle in Indonesia to make sure that smallholder timber production is certified legal in the same way that like larger scale plantation timber is certified legal. Yeah. I imagine the smallholders, it's more difficult for them because they don't have as much capital to really devote to those kinds of things. That's exactly right. And it's also the case that when you have like a third party auditor coming out, they Mm -hmm. can't go visit 300 farms in Pati and Japara. Right. Um, But they can definitely visit one larger plantation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you start thinking about where do the most direct benefits go, uh, of this new program. Of this new program, yeah. Or to timber sales in general. Okay. If you're thinking about who's receiving benefits from timber most directly, mm-hmm. sometimes these policy instruments that are, you know, in many aspects very effective and very good for a bunch of different people might not work in certain in certain ways for certain people. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you had that experience. You went back for four more months. Oh, yeah. Your brain kind of exploded a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then... And then came back, wrote up um, my my master's thesis. And during that time, I was using some tools from IFRI. So I had emailed this guy, Arun Agrawal, mm-hmm. uh, who is to become my PhD advisor, and said, hey, I'm interested in using an electronic survey format. Would it be okay if I took the IFRI forms and popped them into this electronic survey platform called Open Data Kit? So... I did that. And he said, yeah, and tell me how it goes and keep in touch because, like, we're kind of curious about that. So it went okay. Okay. And before we go farther, actually, we probably need to define what IFRI is. Yeah, sorry. So IFRI is the International Forestry Resources and Institutions Network. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was based at the University of Michigan, I think, after it was based in Bloomington for several years. And in, and, at the Indiana University, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was at University of Michigan, and now it's since moved to the Indian School of Business. Right. And so for folks who are listening, a previous guest on this program was Krista Anderson, who was at the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, when the initial relationship between the FAO and Eleanor Ostrom and Indiana University started, um, basically, and created the IFRI program. And I think that was, I mean, no, it was early 90s, 92, 93 um, and then it was based, as you just said, Indiana for a while before moving to Michigan. Okay. So we've got that context. Yeah. So you approached him before explicitly talking about like a PhD or any of that. You were kind of exploring the space. Yeah. I was, uh, I was interested in doing survey work and I was just looking at all the different surveys that were out there to focus on, um, smallholder forest production and came across the IFRI instruments, which are mostly focused at the community level, but they had at that time and still do a household module. So thinking about how individual households receive benefits from forest areas. Right. So I adapted that particular module uh, to the electronic survey form that I was using. And so why were you interested in surveys? This starts to get into something you and I have talked about, different types of interviews, different types of data collection, mixed methods, et cetera. Um, That's a good question. Why was I interested in surveys? Um, I wanted to talk to a large number of farmers to try to understand the way in which uh, smallholder timber production contributed to their livelihoods and well-being. And okay. so I suppose I could have gone about it a different way and mm-hmm. done fewer long-form interviews. Mm-hmm. But I was more interested in the population level effect of smallholder right. timber. You wanted to try to understand what the story was for this larger group of people. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to start with, like, the IFRI data forms. I mean, I don't know how many folks have really looked at them, but those that's a beast. It was. Yeah, it's a bear. Um, there's since been another tool developed from those forms. It's a bit more pared down, um, and it's it lives online as well um, these days. And that's called the COM4, the Community Forester COM4 app. Okay. But, yeah, it's kind of a, a shorter version of the really, really long forget how many modules there are but i think it went to q i might be wrong but there were right as in starting at a starting at a going to q i think so it was a very comprehensive tool 
Um, and like I said, I only used, actually, I think I used two or three modules from it for my, for my master's work. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, that's what got me interested in even thinking about a PhD. And then when I went to apply for programs, I contacted Arun and said, Hey, are you looking for a student? He said, as a matter of fact, yes. And so I applied to Michigan and that was the one place I really wanted to go. Okay. Both to work with him on forestry issues, um, especially in Indonesia or more generally in the global South, but also because they have uh, the Institute for Social Research, which focuses on survey methodology. Okay. And that's a campus-wide institute that works with anyone at Michigan, really? Yeah, they have um, a lot of their own academics in-house, and they do some of the largest nationally representative surveys in the United States as well. Okay. Um, So it's its own enterprise, but they accept students from all different departments in addition to having their own programs. And does that have anything to do with the ICPSR program? I mean, I imagine they're involved somehow. So they share building space. And I would say ICPSR, which is the Inner Consortium for Political... Don't look at me. I've uh, never Political Science. To... Uh, ICPSR. Political Science Research is in there. Yeah, In yeah. some capacity or social research. I'm not exactly sure. It's Googleable, folks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but they're in the same building. And I believe in Michigan, they're under the ISR, but they're also their own separate entity. Okay, got it. All right. Okay, and so yeah. you went to Michigan, and then you got involved, more involved in IFRI. Yeah, um, so there was, when I was doing my PhD in Michigan, there was a big group of PhDs, there were about three of us at any given time affiliated with IFRI, and then probably seven or eight postdocs who okay. were all affiliated with IFRI in some capacity. Okay. And was, were all those folks working with Arun or was it with, was there a collection of professors involved? Yeah, or? it would be with Arun and also perhaps with other professors as well. Okay, at the school. Mm-hmm. At, yeah. You know, recently I talked to Larry Crowder, who's now at Stanford, but was at the Nicholas School at Duke. Mm-hmm. We've also interviewed a former student of his, Elena Finkbeiner, who mm-hmm. for a while was at Duke um, working with Larry. So I've heard about the Nicholas School recently, about how it works, et cetera, and, and what it has to offer is... An interdisciplinary school that values professional education, you know, surely among other things. So I'm interested in hearing about your experiences like within your group, but then also like how you experienced that like as a school. Is there like an undergrad major? Is there a master's program? Are there multiple master's programs? Like- yeah, Radio Land can't see this, but I'm nodding. Yeah. So there's uh, an undergraduate program, which is now housed at SEAS. So. Okay. Um, and then there is a master's program, a professional master's program, which has kind of been the core of C's for a long time. But Right. Um, and then there's a PhD program as well, in addition to a lot of faculty and postdocs and staff as well. Right. So there's a lot happening. There's a lot. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge community of people really interested in, I would say, social ecological systems. There would be different faculty who would co-teach classes together. So there was a class on ecosystem services that was co-taught by an economist and an ecologist. Okay. Cool. Um, faculty work together a lot, kind of like in groups, is something that I've noticed. From, okay. from my educational perspective, I took forest ecology, and then I took like a ton of policy and poli-sci courses in addition to some economics. So I was very much on the social the environmental social science aspect of it. Right, okay. Um, and kind of originally anticipated doing a lot more ecological research in my dissertation, but due to permitting, that wasn't really an option. So um, when I was getting my research permit for Indonesia, it turned out that working in the national park where my field site was kind of on the border of this, it's the second largest terrestrial park in Indonesia. It's called Kerinci Sablat National Park. And... To work in the national park and actually do um, like transects wasn't really an option if I wanted to get my permit within the time frame that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So um, luckily, I had also been taking classes. Michigan doesn't have a geography department. So like most of the geography is in C's okay. in the School for Environment and Sustainability. So I've been doing remote sensing and, and GIS work. So that's kind of what I use to kind of fill the ecological void i had originally thought i would be doing on a kind of like on a smaller scale but more plot based yeah yeah i mean that's interesting it reminds me of 
I mean, I, I dabbled in some GIS remote sensing back in Taos, New Mexico, and basically just calculated some NDVI at the mm-hmm. community level to look at these basically as a biophysical outcome for these irrigation systems. Yeah. And I'm reminded of a 2006 article by Oren Young mm-hmm. um, called, I think, like a portfolio approach to... It's like global environmental governance or something like something that. Something like that. It's yeah. basically a methodological review article. It's yeah. terrific. It just talks about all of these different the tools that, mm-hmm. that are available and the issues, the, the methodological issues that the kind of the field of whatever we want to call it, social ecological systems faces. And I remember, I believe in the article, one thing they mentioned is that one of the most common ways we deal with like the biophysical piece mm-hmm. is basically as it's, it's most frequently a dependent variable or an outcome, mm-hmm. but then it can be very challenging to measure outcomes generally, and it can be very difficult to measure ecological outcomes. I've struggled with this in my work in the Dominican Republic for fisheries, and it's been, it seems like for terrestrial systems, particularly GIS remote sensing is a helpful answer to that issue because you can actually you can get satellite imagery that's more and more available through things like Google Earth Engine, et cetera. So is that is that how you saw it as a way to really like measure a biophysical dependent variable, and then there, and then is that how ecology kind of fit into your work? It's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I, you know, there are different interpretations of how ecological that actually is. And depending on what product you're using, if it's a remote sensing project or product that you've created yourself versus one that's available online, like through Global Forest Watch or something like that, which is through the World Resources Inst- um, Institution, WRI? World Resources Institute. Institute. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it, you know, that's that's how I incorporated it. Okay. It, that's exactly right. Looking at it as a dependent variable. So forest cover change as a dependent variable. Right. So you got images for the same spot over time. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And looked at variations in greenness or, or whatever you were. Yeah. Uh, didn't you do, do like land, class, land classifications to kind of see whether things were changing? Did you do that kind of stuff? Or? So in, uh, in my work, what I actually ended up doing was since there are a bunch of these different um, products these forest cover products Mm -hmm. so one is from the matt hansen lab which is on global forest watch which is one that a lot of people are familiar with but it's just tree cover right um so So it's like percent tree cover in an area exactly and there's a cut point at 30 percent canopy cover okay um so i use that product i also used a product from the ministry of environment and forestry uh in indonesia which i was gained like like i gained proprietary access to Um, so it's something that their ministry has collected which differs from the the Global Forest Watch data, as you can imagine, forest being a pretty political mm-hmm. term, uh, much less an ecological one. Right. So I used kind of both of those to to examine where forest cover was or wasn't and why, depending on like the different elements of my research. Okay. So would you call yourself... Hmm. Actually, I, I remember, I think I looked at your website today and you're referring yourself as an environmental social scientist. <laughs> I mean, this is, I think this is one of the most interesting questions for folks like us. I mean, I also call myself that, you know, this podcast is housed on a website called the Environmental Social Science Network, which is this kind of new experimental project that some of us are starting up. Right. And so, I mean, you're, you're obviously doing mixed methods. Yeah. And mixed methods is kind of a fancy sounding term for basically, for most people, it's qualitative, quantitative, some mix of those things, mm-hmm. which, you know, when I first heard the term mixed method, I was almost surprised that we needed a term for that. It's right. like, well, until, you know, I became more sensitized to how strong sometimes the intellectual and social boundaries between the different groups of qualitative and quantitative researchers that there are. Yeah. And so it became that term, I think I came to realize does work mm-hmm. in saying, no, there are a bunch of us who like really want to try to do both of these things and maybe a step farther. I think that that's even, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to whisper this, like the best way to do things is if we actually measure stuff, but the measurement doesn't crowd out some really deep qualitative thinking right. that we're not just shutting our brains off and letting, hoping that the numbers tell a story for us, mm-hmm. but that we also value the reliability and comparability that can come from quantification. Mm-hmm. And I think realizing that most conclusions we come through via quantification kind of has some um, some relationship to a qualitatively formed opinion or idea right. yeah. that has come first. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the 
one of the challenges of quantitative work is that it, it operates within this rhetoric of uh, objectivity, maybe transparency. And I think we've seen in a lot of the reproducibility crises in different sciences, a lot, a lot of which have like quite quantitative practices, is that you never get, you can never remove the human brain in its social context from science, right? right. And so there's folks that, oh, what's the term for this? It's, uh, there's a whole bunch of folks, it's called technology studies. Yeah, science and technology Science studies. and technology studies, it's like, you know, that, that look at a lot of these issues about how science is produced, et cetera, mm -hmm. and really effectively problematize a lot of these dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, something that I've talked to my students about when I've taught statistics is just you can't, there's, you can never really turn your brain off. Right. It's not. And I, and I think there's this challenge now that we're kind of on this. Right. There's been this whole a really great literature now on like P hacking. I mm -hmm. like to refer to this as the kind of um, video game high score approach to science where somehow, you know, a P value or an AIC or a beta coefficient <laughs> equals truth. And which, of course, it just doesn't. And then what you worry about when you're in the literature is. You know, in the method section, you never you never read in someone's method section like, well, I messed around with the model for a while until I got just what I want. Right. And there's no, you're not going to police this. You're not going to enforce this. I mean, I know there are these in, in some sciences now they're asking for these. Oh, I'm forgetting the name of these reports as well. They're, they're reports now that are, I'll look, up, look it up later and post it on the post for your episode, but... They are reports that people submit to a journal before they actually do the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I forget what that's called as well. There are a couple of journals that have started doing it or maybe that have been doing it for a long time, but I just became aware of it on the Twitterverse where it's like you submit a proposal saying, I'm going to do this study. This is how I'm kind of defining all of my models. Yeah. And then there's an agreement that it will be published when that study is ready to be published, regardless of whether the finding that you were your hypothesis was supported or not. Right. Um, which I think is a really cool and very valid way to pursue science. Yeah. I'm all for it, though I haven't participated in one, so I don't really know what the trade-offs right. are. Right, yeah. yeah. It's one of these things where it sounds good. It's yeah, not it affecting great. me right now. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And maybe once it starts to affect me and makes me have to do extra things, yeah. then that changes my opinion. Yeah. Hopefully not. Yeah. So one comment on kind of the more general conversation about quantitative research uh, I feel like within the past five, maybe 10 years, there's been a lot of this work on causal inference and the causal revolution um, in terms a of causal revolution, a causal revolution. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, at least according to, to some folks who work in that in that sphere uh -huh. um, where, you know, certain certain fields have always been very, very careful about interpreting any association causally. Um, Correlation you know, doesn't equal causation. Exactly. Except sometimes it does. Except sometimes it's like winking at you. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. like, when does it? And I think that's what this kind of causal revolution or causal inference takes very seriously. It's that question. Exactly. When is an association actually representative of a causal relationship? Right. And it does it. I mean, there are a lot of books on this and um, a lot of people working in this sphere. And I think that's kind of one of the most exciting nuanced approaches to quantitative research um that i'm aware of mm -hmm. and i mean it also okay. incorporates this this uh a dag like so um a directional directed <laughs> directed acyclical graph, graph. Oh, exactly yes. okay. so i feel like dags in some way kind of make sure that you're accounting for um there's some some honesty involved with creating a DAG, right? So it's like... I've never used one. So yeah, yeah, so okay. you're plotting out all the variables and they're box and arrow plots and you're kind of plotting out, okay, how does everything affect everything else within this mini little universe that I'm looking at? Okay, do these things become spaghetti diagrams? <laughs> they it... can. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, spaghetti diagrams I think of uh, a little bit differently. But yeah, a lot of times now they're being included in, in, in research to okay. say this is how we see the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest steps forward in terms of causal inference um there is a necessary um human intuition behind causality yes that is uh -huh. basically the be all end all and you're saying like i'm imposing this order on the world because i see it that way and it you know like let's see if it bears out basically and if you don't if you don't agree with the way i see the world that this could be causal then you're not going to agree with my findings regardless 
So like the buck stops there. Yeah. I mean, but isn't once we acknowledge that <laughs> the human brain is behind a lot of this, then, I mean, we have to take on board the behavioral evolution and economics and all the, mm. you know, this litany, you know, I'm sure Wikipedia, right, has some website where it's here is the 800 biases and so-called irrationalities that we now have to contend with. Confirmation bias yeah. to me seeming to be the most important one. Yeah. But there's also salience biases, right? We see one outlier, someone who, you know, beat the market for five years running and we think, oh, this person, you know, <laughs> let's, let's buy their book at the airport. Right. Because it must be, they must be doing something. It can't be that they're simply the, the tail end of a normal distribution. Right. So there's like all of these systematic ways in which the brain does that poorly. I mean, I'm not, these are not your problems, or at least they're not yours individually. They're all of our problems. Yeah, they're all of our problems. And yeah. challenges, like they're fun, too, so, in a way. So, I mean, it, gets, it reminds me of your major in philosophy. So, my major at Colby was philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it was really, the reason I did it was because my favorite professor, Jeff Kasser, who I believe is now at um, Colorado State University, um, CSU in Colorado, I just thought he was terrific. He was like a, he was the first like intellectual mentor I had. And I just wanted to learn from him a lot. He taught a philosophy of science class. Cool. And so one interesting question before somehow we get back to Indonesia is should like scientists have to take maybe a, a philosophy of science class? I mean, what I think I see you nodding. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. I think everybody should have to everybody take a philosophy should. of science yeah. class. <laughs> and but B, like like a, a, a psychology class, like the, to try to understand the social context of science and how it affects all of us, or doesn't. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Well, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, so we can start with the first question. Like, right. So I remember, and this was a long time ago now. Like, what what can I actually recall from this philosophy of science class? I remember leaving it with this feeling that whatever principle. I came up with, no, I didn't come up with it, right? I read it and uh, maybe I agreed with it. Like, oh, this is the way we should do things. We should be Popperian and yeah. <laughs> be falsificationist and, or Lakatosis said something intelligent. So we should think about, you know, all that stuff. Epistemological anarchy. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember thinking whatever principle you decide to run your professional aspects of your professional life by like i will be this type of scientist a smart person is thought of context in which you wouldn't want to do that sure yeah yeah i think it's and you can probably generalize that beyond science to just like living your life like things always depend yeah except for the statement it depends <laughs> right like yeah but i think it's important to recognize those limits i think that's sure that's the most important contribution that that type of class could you know, so it gives provide. you humility, maybe? Humility. Um, I mean, did you definitely. take a similar class? Or, I mean, how, how yeah. did your philosophical background affect you? So I think what it has imparted to me now is that I, tr I try to carefully think about the way in which knowledge is being created from different camps. So, mm -hmm. for example, like, I understand why when I'm doing my quantitative work, I'm doing all these different tests. Sure. Yeah, But then when I'm working with NGOs, let's say, and one, uh, one aspect of my work right now is um, it's slightly transdisciplinary, I think. Um, I work with NGOs. And to be transdisciplinary, my understanding, it's a term that I've recently, I didn't used to use it, but mm -hmm. now I kind of love it. Yeah. Basically, it means working with non-academic actors, right. is my understanding. Exactly. So yeah. working with practitioners yeah. is to try to say, okay, let's, let's kind of up the ante when it comes to your estimate of your impact in a given field and you know my the field i work with in in this sphere is looking at the impact ngos who uh focus on forest governance or forest livelihoods and well-being mm -hmm. how they can just more rigorously estimate the impact they're having on the populations with whom they work okay so trying to understand why they like how they're creating knowledge to you know bring to themselves or bring to other people mm -hmm. i think is something that you know kind of like a vestige of my older or younger philosophical self trying to say like okay like from from what vantage does a certain type of knowledge benefit these people versus a certain type of knowledge benefit me and how are like we creating these different mm -hmm. knowledges or are they the same yeah, yeah okay yeah so i think that that's one way um and the reason i got into philosophy was um i really like the ancient greeks but i didn't want to study 
uh, Greek or the ancient Greek. I just liked what they were saying. Exactly. Didn't want to be a classics major, but I loved like the Platonic dialogues and I loved Aristotle. Uh, And then I got into social theory. So it was just kind of like a love of the content. But I always wanted to do something more uh, with the environment and human relationships with the environment. Okay. um, Which got me into environmental ethics. Um, And so I feel like, you know, that's kind of a a constant thread in my work is thinking about how ought we manage this area, Mm -hmm. which is a super tricky, complicated question touching on what you just said. Like from what vantage do you think about it? And you know, like what's, what's the validity of any of the statements that we bring to bear on how ought we manage parcel A? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think one interesting thought experiment that um, I have found affects my thinking a lot is to imagine that the next conclusions uh, I write in a journal article will form the basis for national policy. Somewhere. Yeah. Some state somewhere is going <laughs> to use that. And it's it makes you think differently about what you're writing. Don't know if I'd ever finish an article. Right. Yeah. I'd be like, well, I'd just you'd write you'd 80 different ways in which it depends. And like that's your entire thesis. Yeah. yeah. So, to, okay. So we talked about, you mentioned transdisciplinarity, working mm-hmm. with non-academic actors. And we have this idea of environmental social science. And I'd like to ask you a question about how they relate to each other. Do you think, what do you think environmental social science is? Mm -hmm. And maybe do you think a part of what it is is to necessarily be transdisciplinary? So short answer, yes. Long answer. I think environmental social science is necessarily problem oriented. I think it's less disciplinary or less, less focused in discipline and more focused on specific problems or issues Mm-hmm. that relate to social ecological systems, I'll say, or coupled human right. natural. Uh, so deforestation. System. So deforestation, for example, or, you know, take a step you know, beyond that, climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are these big issues. And, you know, maybe they live under the umbrella of sustainability, but I think it might actually be a larger set than just sustainable outcomes. I think environmental social science is... is focused on these re- these relationships between people and the environment um, mm-hmm. and the way in which people I don't from my from my little slice of it like manage uh, natural resources in order to benefit from them how they, they do that in the long term so yeah I think it is transdisciplinary because you you do that research but you know in in my case I do that research but I'm working with so many different types of people in order to be able to do it and like have a grasp of what forest management looks like in Indonesia, for example, much less mm-hmm. New Hampshire. So I think it does necessarily involve transdisciplinarity, uh, but in and interdisciplinarity. But yep. you know, a, a lot of people disagree with that. I think. Yeah, my understanding of these different arities is that we have, you know, disciplinarity. I guess we should start with that, which is just one is the loneliest number. Right. Um, multidisciplinarity is. I understand that is this kind of, I was talking to Larry about this analogy earlier this week, kind of the baton passing model of science where you get, ideally you get the most famous people you can find and each one of them does what they do and they just kind of take turns. Yeah. Interdisciplinarity is more inter, Mm -hmm. right? So there's more interweaving and weaving is a a nice word a lot of people like to use. Yeah. So there's more integration, I guess. Yeah. And then you add on non-academic actors. I suppose you could have a, someone from a single discipline and engaging with non-academic actors. You could. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of being interdisciplinary. I think the the challenge I have is when we, we call things that really are multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. Sure. And I think that's the hardest. That, to jump from, from multi to inter, I think is just as hard as from like anything to like transdisciplinary. I think it... I'm very familiar with the constraints of academia, so I'd say it might even be harder to go from multi to inter than yeah. inter to transdisciplinary. But I don't know. Um, I do think that because I put those meanings onto environmental social social science, yeah, like I believe in that that term, that title, a lot because of it. Because I feel like it's not limiting in a certain way, uh-huh. uh, and I feel like it kind of represents what I believe in in terms of. The values you want to promote in your yeah, career. Yeah, exactly. But I suppose it's kind of like a, a novel space, if not a new space, where it's like, I'm putting those meanings onto it. Does everybody else have the same understanding? You know, it's up for debate. And I suppose that's kind of one of the benefits or drawbacks in terms of positioning yourself in that space. Yeah, yeah. You have to have a discussion about it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think having discussions is really the key to a lot of this, right? Like, how do we actually get people in some kind of shared space where they can develop these common understandings? I went to a geography colloquium talk here, so the geography department here at Dartmouth, and this person, the presenter, had been a part of a big multidisciplinary project. And what he said was that the big, that these kinds of relationships need to form organically. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe this is, you could say, kind of bottom up, that people actually need to spend time engaging with each other. And I wonder whether in kind of busy careers that all of us kind of dive into, that a lot of what we do crowds out the time for that discussion, because it's costly, There's re- and there's really no substitute for it, right? So right. you and I are carving out this hour, you know, and after this, maybe I need a nap. Um, <laughs> it really, it, it requires some investment. You really yeah. have to to invest in someone. Yeah. To really learn what they're doing. And how many people can you really do that with? I think that's one reason I really believe in environmental schools, schools that go under the banner right. of environment or sustainability. I think it's really important um, because it brings all those people into a space. Yes. You know, whether or not the work is multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary is a question mark. But at least everybody's there in a shared space together. And I think that's really important. Totally agree. Is that how it was at the workshop? At the oh. Ostrom workshop, or was that was it slightly different? No, it was that was a big part of the value for me of the workshop. So you know, now we're talking about the workshop in political theory and policy analysis at Indiana University. So you know, I went to I was formerly a, a student at SPIA at Indiana, but after my first year or two, when I became a student of Lenostrum's, really my experience was dominated by the workshop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, SPIA has its own building, and the workshop was a series of like four houses. Mm-hmm. like a couple blocks away. And so it really was its own social, physical and social space, which I really fell in love with. Like it was in a neighborhood yeah. that I loved. I loved Bloomington, mm-hmm. just everything about it. I tell everyone in the Northeast, like you got to go to, <laughs> you got to go to Southern Indiana. And so even like the term workshop, right? Lynn told really all of us that they chose that very purposefully to reflect the kind of social space that an actual woodworking shop is where it's very oh, craft-based. Cool. She even assigned us an article, I think, by Freeman Dyson called Science as a Craft Industry, mm-hmm. which I really like. I like thinking about it that way. Mm-hmm. I think science, if done well and if done happily, should feel creative. Mm-hmm. Like, not entirely. Sometimes you just need to, like, crank and do some grunt work and there's just some technical stuff. But I don't think it should be only that. And so it was emphasizing that. And I think there are social implications of that framing as well, that you learn a craft uh, socially. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's not only looking at, you know, PDFs for three hours a day, that you're, you're in this kind of together. And so, yeah, that really made me very happy as a grad student. And I certainly think about it in the Triple S PhD program way of here is, is how do we create social spaces? Because I think you need that. Yeah. Early in my time at Indiana, I, I was listening to some talk and someone was preparing us to be PhD students. And they said, you know, you're about to embark on like a monastic experience. <laughs> and I didn't, I reacted negatively. I did that. That did not sound great to me. You know, everyone's different. And, you know, it's good. To, it's a privilege to be able to kind of spend time on your own and read, et cetera, and be a professional learner. That's extraordinary. Yeah. But I also want, I wanted to talk to people. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe that explains why I'm now a social scientist. Sure. Not to imply that people who aren't social scientists don't want to talk to people, but it certainly is for a lot of us like a key part of our job. Like when we go do field work, that's Absolutely. what we're engaging with. Yeah. And I think you're better at it if you find that, you know, in some way quite deeply gratifying. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was also a synergy between like the type of science we were doing at the workshop. It was social science and the f- social philosophy of the space. And certainly there was, there was yeah. a kitchen, there was a seminar room, right? There was like a big fridge and everyone like bring their lunches. Mm-hmm. Or even if, you know, I went down and bought a sandwich at Jimmy John's, I would like bring it back and we'll just eat with my friend Sergio. Yeah. And yeah, I think space is really important. I think it's, it's funny. I think when we talk about how to succeed as organiz- as any kind of organization, I think, I think a lot of type of organizations are coming around to this. You know, I, I've heard that in human resources departments in different places now, the people who work there sometimes have like masters in organizational theory, mm-hmm. reflecting the recognition that you actually need to understand things about people and how they behave if you're gonna like if you're gonna try to help take care of the human capital in an organization. Yeah, and so the importance of space at the workshop and really to me reflected some understanding of human behavior and what people need to basically thrive in a place. Right. 
And so sometimes I think, I, I don't think we're near to the point where we're worrying too much about that stuff. Right, right. And it's also like there are all these great examples of it too. Like a woodworking shop is one example. And there are countless others. And the same goes for, I think, educational models too. Yeah. Um, you think of some like the longest standing educational models in the world. You know, like long standing professions like law and medicine. You know, they use case studies. And it's only now I feel like the environmental wing is starting to be like, oh, case studies are really important. And you see kind of a bunch of these platforms popping up again to look at environmental case studies. It's like, I think we're doing a better job in terms of, you know, environmental social scientists, like looking around and saying what's working for different people and why, yeah. and then incorporating it. I think that's really important. Yeah. We can have a whole conversation about case studies too. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, what do you think about, okay, that reminded me of one, at least one more question. So another term that I've been thinking about and using more recently is reflexivity. Mm. So kind of the turning in of theoretical lenses. What do you think about this idea? So it, what do you think the value of being reflexive is for a social scientist? Where So my colleague on the Finding Sustainability podcast, Stefan Partzolo, mentioned this. In social science, the, the object is also the subject. Because mm. we are all also the thing that we study. But that's not unique to social science, is it? Is You know, doctors study the human organism. Sure. They yes. are a human organism. Actually, or lawyers. Yeah. Or... So maybe then you could ask this question to folks that study multiple aspects of the human experience. Yeah. So do you find yourself being reflexive about, say, yourself or groups of which you're a part, for example, thinking, oh, what would it take to like make this group work better? Maybe we need some kind of enforcement, mm -hmm. not to sound heavy handed about it, right? Because yeah. enforcement can mean lots of things. Yeah, sure. I definitely think about it in terms of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so that was perhaps one of the bigger differences between when I started TAing and teaching um, in in like a college atmosphere versus when I was doing it in a middle school or a high school classroom. Mm -hmm. I had these design principles or these ways of thinking about the world, collective action problems, exit voice and loyalty, where it's like, oh, like there are different ways to structure classroom settings. Yeah. You know, like the the both the design principles and and other ways of thinking about like collective action problems, I feel like makes their their comment there's a lot of common sense behind them too, where, Absolutely. you know, and I think that's kind of the beauty of, of research that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense for a good reason. It just takes the right person to come along and say like, Hey, right. That's going on. And you know, there's maybe a good theoretical reason for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so I think kind of structuring classrooms around certain elements that I learned about helped a lot. I think transparency was also like really something that I kind of like really value. Um, transparency and earnesty both like personally and when i'm like in a professional setting just trying to be like okay why am i doing this mm -hmm. um does it make me happy if not do i need to do it right and i think saying the same thing to students is really important absolutely um because at the end of the day we all have a choice in a classroom like you can do or not do this assignment mm -hmm. yeah or invest more time or invest less time and think about like and the whatever marginal it is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess in that case, I definitely bring some of the like the design principles or collective action problem um, tenets to bear on when when I'm in a group or kind of in a professional setting. Uh, I've also thought about like you can imagine somebody who might use them to justify pretty poor behavior. What we'd think of as like not contributing to the, the common wheel of the collective good because they're like, well, there's no graduated sanctions. So who right. might, you know, so like, who am I to, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to flirt with that line or like, you know, free writing, you can learn about free writing and be like, I am going to be the best free writer I can be. Like, yep. so I think I'm going to win this game. Yeah. 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 And you know, definitely I do that in board games. Right. <laughs> but I like to think I don't do it so much in my actual life. I mean, that's the tension, right? Is that we all are aware of some ways. I mean, no human is like mm -hmm. avoids free riding throughout their whole life. That's it's true. Like not a thing. Yeah. 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 But I, yeah, I try to be reflexive in both like kind of applying things that I study or I'm interested in to my own life, but also reflexive in, I guess, kind of like a, a more, a way that's more affiliated with motivation. Am I like being intrinsically motivated by this mm -hmm. thing or is it for a goal? And do I believe in that, like that extrinsic goal at the end of the day? Okay. So let's make this the last topic actually, because I really want to think about like, I want to talk to you about kind of what your next steps are, et cetera. Okay. You just got this NSF grant. So I'd love to hear about what you're planning to do with that. Kind of what is it, what is exciting? I know you were in the field recently. What's happening in your life now professionally in, in terms of your projects and kind of where, what are the next steps? 
Yeah. So one of the most interesting findings from my dissertation for me was something I stumbled upon. Um, I was trying to figure out how to calculate the added benefit of having a protected area nearby mm-hmm. if um, a community was primarily focused on in Indonesia, there's just a label of the forest state called production forest. So if you have a production forest plus a conservation forest, do we see any benefits accrued? But when okay. I was trying to figure out that analysis at, at the national level, I had to deal with this issue of villages uh, fracturing, so splitting. And I just like, I was so upset by this because every study that I was looking at didn't really address it directly. Okay. Um, they didn't even control for it. Just mentioned it. If that. And I was just like, how is this? And I was looking through all this literature and trying to figure out how people were dealing with it. And I realized, well, that's just like fascinating in and of itself. So Mm -hmm. since Indonesia's turned toward democracy, you know, which has been about 20 years now, there have been about 15,000 new villages created. That's a lot. And so what I... 15,000 new villages. New villages. On top of what was already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I went from roughly 60,000 to roughly 85,000. Okay. Yeah. Uh, official quote unquote villages, you okay. know, and villages do have their own governance structure in Indonesia. So like a formal one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you elect the village head, the Kapala Desa. Um, and then there's also like a, a village council. Okay. Um, and so I started to try to figure out if there was an effect when villages split, if there is this like dispersal of quote unquote regulation, be it formal or informal. Mm-hmm. Um, were we seeing concomitant loss in forest cover or gain in forest cover? You could see it going either way, right? You could say like, well, uh, it's possible that there's um, not a gain in forest cover, but an avoided loss because people are now feeling more responsible for the area in which they live because they've advocated for a new village, they have it, and they feel like more ownership over these natural resources. Right. So this is some of the Theoretical justification for decentralization and related concepts, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. local ownership. Yeah, exactly. And so the other side of that would be, well, maybe there's a period in which when a new village um, has dispersed or split that you don't have as much official oversight, administrative oversight. Mm -hmm. So there's a better chance during that period after a split that you'd see forest cover loss. Is that like a local capacity argument? It'd be a local capacity. It also might be like, yeah, it could be a capacity, regulatory capacity. It could also be maybe there's an incentive for a new village head to look the other way. Something where, okay, you know, it's just the incentives are aligned such that, you know, there would be more forest cover loss, mm-hmm. primarily for smallholder ag or, okay. or potentially like government funded ag. Okay. Um, and so what I found was between 2000 and 2014, um, doing the kind of the most rigorous quantitative research I could, when a village splits, there's a lag effect of about three or six years. And you actually see within that period, there's forest cover loss. And so I became not obsessed, but like really interested in this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, like this is so, this is so cool. Like this finding to me is really important because working in Indonesia, I've noticed that a lot of decisions are made locally, though there might be policy that's, you know, above it. The way it's interpreted on the ground might be different. Um, and so I think the village, yeah, the village unit's really important to study, mm-hmm. kind of a dearth of information on it in Indonesia right now. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of spiraled out into this, this research that I'll be embarking on shortly. Um, and so the, the new work will be looking to see if this same effect of what we're calling regulatory dispersal. Mm-hmm. So when you disperse regulation, do we see a loss in forest cover, whether that is reflected in another case country, so in Ghana, Um, and then looking at the opposite mechanism. So when villages kind of recombine or small local governments aggregate, aggregate, exactly, whether that has an effect that's similar, different to this regulatory dispersal. And we'll look at that in Nepal. And so this is using um, government like administrative boundary data Mm -hmm. and remotely sense forest cover change. And then I'll be doing some interviews with the new village heads in Indonesia. In-person interviews. In-person interviews. Yeah. Just to be like, so what's going on here? Like what, you know, it's, is this a new village? No. Yes. Okay. And then like, how are people responding to being a new village? Like, is there, is there a thrust for, um, more agricultural production Mm -hmm. or do you find that people are more or less willing to actually, uh, go along with government protocol and regulation, that kind of stuff. Right. So to ask you a question similar to what I did earlier, why, why are you going into the field, right? Like, why can't you just sit 
in Hanover, oh, collect all of his data remotely, hit the go button, and out comes the truth. Like, why do you why do you really need to go there? Uh, my my first reaction is because it is the best part of what I do. Almost like I okay. love field work. But I think the more considered answer is because unless you, my feeling is that unless you go to a place and talk to people and observe it yourself, mm-hmm. have a different interpretation of data, much less perhaps not as great of an understanding of what's actually going on on the ground. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's filtered through your own biases and identity and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. when you're actually on the ground observing. But I think that's why you try to triangulate and talk to as many people and ask their opinion about what's going on. Yeah. Um, and make sense of it in that way. So I guess the short answer is to know what's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's... Beyond my computer screen. Yeah, I mean, I was fishing there a little yeah, bit, but sure. I think this is important to reflect on, partly because we were talking about, you know, the importance of measurement, et cetera, earlier. I mean, it's... Yeah, for me, I think it's if you don't go to the field, you kind of don't know what you don't know. That's also right? a good So you point. don't really know... Yeah. You kind of hope these numbers are true. Yeah. And this is, in a way, a challenge of, like, secondary data generally. And... I think the two main, when we were talking earlier about, you know, how do you sort out correlation from causation? How do you kind of figure out what story numbers are telling generally? It's for me, the two most obvious answers are one theory. Mm -hmm. Is there an actual like mechanism that would make sense here? Dags. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, Or in context. Yeah. Right. And those are related to each other, but different. Yeah. Being on maybe different spectrums of the general, you know, about based on generalizability specificity. Mm hmm. But I mean, when I was, again, in the Dominican Republic, I was in the first fishing village we worked in. I was working with an ecologist who had lived in this village for like eight months. And so every time we'd come up with a new result, I would check with him and be like, well, you've lived with these fishers for this long. Like, yeah. what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all about colleagues, people you can bounce ideas off of and yeah. who know context better than you do or somebody who knows theory better than you do and triangulating it all. Yeah. At least that's, yeah, that's my, my answer to it. Um, okay, so when are you when are you headed off to be hooked again? Hmm. Probably. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't scheduled my next my next up departure. Um, okay. But next year, sometime, 2020. Okay. Oh, and do we talk? You're going to Michigan. Did yeah. We talk about this. We haven't talked about this yet. Okay. This is the last thing. Okay. Uh, you're going to Michigan for a, this, the, is it the Flare or is it the Sustainability Conference or what? what do you yeah, mean? so it'll be the Sustainability and Development Conference. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, did you go to it last year? I did. Okay. And so it's is it trying to basically be a new academic conference? Like, mm-hmm. is there a society forming around it? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. What's the society called? Sustainability and Development, I believe. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so is it that's meeting then has nothing to do with Flare. No, Flair's happening next weekend or this weekend. I forget. Oh, soon. Yeah. Okay, and you're going to that too. I'm not. You're not. But you're still you're still involved in it. In the net, it's a network. It's a network. Yeah, okay. Can we finish up making like the Ifri Flair Michigan yeah. triangulation connection, etc.? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So from Ifri has emerged Flair, uh, the Forests and Livelihoods Assessment, Research, and Evaluation Group. Okay. And it's. It's intended to be kind of a network or community of practice where people look at forests and livelihoods. And there are a couple different elements to it. One is primary research that kind of like flare affiliated researchers do. The second is the conference that is held, the annual conference that this year is in Michigan in Ann Arbor. And previously has been uh, in Europe for about the past four or five years. So it sounds... I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but it sounds very much similar to the IFRI model if you have these network of sites and people are collecting data ideally over time. So that's the difference, I suppose. The oh. difference is that there's no structured um, data collection mechanism. So it's not oh, like really? people go out with a form and collect data. So the difference is it's more dispersed. So you'll okay. have researchers affiliated with Flare who are doing their own research in some capacity. Okay. Now, there is one instrument that we've kind of developed as a team who works at with Flare, um, and that's the Livelihood and Well-Being Survey. So right, okay, that was primarily developed, and I talked a little bit about that before. So the Livelihood and Well-Being tool, called the Live Well tool, is a kind of reduced survey form. So it's supposed to take between thirty to forty-five minutes, and it kind of combines a whole bunch of common questions found in nationally representative surveys that are. Uh, implemented around the world. So if you think of like the demographic health survey, the DHS or the 
LSMS, the Living Standards Measurement Survey. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these very large surveys have questions that are pretty comparable to one another, but maybe not perfectly. So the idea is with a smaller 30 to 45 minute survey form, we ask some of these questions that are comparable on a large scale so that NGOs, practitioners, or researchers can go in um, with a set of tools like these different manuals and try to more rigorously estimate impact. And more consistently, like across units of analysis, observation, et cetera. Exactly, right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the holy grails, right? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, the most rewarding part of it has been working with NGOs and saying like, what are you interested in collecting? Why? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have a conversation about that. And you say like, well, in the academic research, you know, you need a baseline survey and an end line. And then like, ideally, you'd have a community that you've worked with and a community you haven't worked with. And you track both over time to mm -hmm. really understand, you know, what your, your impact has been. Right. And understanding the constraints those groups and individuals are under. Yeah. Really brings to light some of the structural difficulties there um, of collecting that data, of analyzing it, and that kind of thing. So being able to partner with organizations and provide some of that, both like advice and actual research, has been pretty exciting. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast. <laughs>